The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you for the songs we have sung that have reminded us of that fact. Lord, give us wisdom now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, today's sermon topic, and I first want to thank Willie for preaching last week. Thank you, brother, for bringing the word from Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the fifth seal. This morning, we are continuing our study. We started a Mother's Day of this year called God Wins, a study of Revelation. And we are now in chapter 6, verse 12, if you want to find your way there. The very last book of the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers uh, are the chapter numbers, chapter 6, big number, small number 12. And if you're able to stand this morning, would you join me as we uh, read God's Word together? Today's title is God Wins the Judgment. God Wins the Judgment. And I want us to see this morning as we read this that safety from Jesus can only be found in Jesus. And we'll unpack that as we go as the big idea for today. Just by way of reminder, I want you to say that we've kind of taken the angle, although we may be wrong in this, we may not be. We've kind of taken the angle that the first five seals, the first five, uh, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse through verse 9, and then what we saw uh, there in verse uh, 9 through 11 last week with Willie are, are something that will happen for all time. It's something that's happening for the church of all time, everywhere, every place. But as we get down to verse 12, everyone seems to agree that we're now shifting the focus from the broad spectrum of time to the very end of time, to the last days, literally. And how you take that symbolic or literal will unpack that, but I want you to know, whatever perspective on Revelation you take, everyone seems to agree this is the end, the sixth seal. This is a picture of what's going to happen at that day. So with that in mind, hear God's word this morning, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. When he, remember, he is the lamb slain, Jesus, when he opened the sixth seal, I, John, looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a wind or a gale. Then, verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll. That is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling, verse 16, to the mountains and rocks, they said, Fall on us and hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. 4, verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? It's a very sobering picture, isn't it, of what is coming. But I want you to know that safety in Jesus or safety from Jesus can only be found in Jesus. And if you're here today and you know Christ, whatever befalls this world, you're safe and secure. But especially if you're not in Jesus today, this is a word for you. You need to come to know him. He is the only Savior of the world. Let's pray together and we'll unpack this as we go through. Thank you for being here again. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, we abundantly ask, as our brother prayed a moment ago, for your words to be said, not mine, Lord, but your words speak. May whatever we say or do in this time bring honor and glory to your name. 
For Father, whether we see it now or not, whether we can see past the things of our lives that are so immediate and urgent and emergency-like, this is coming. And Father, I pray that we are on the right side of eternity. And Father, we thank you. The right side of eternity is found through the narrow way to the cross, the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other name under heaven under which by which we are saved, except the name of Jesus. Father, thank you that true safety is found in you and you alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Maybe seated. Thank you. Well, in an article published over 10 years ago in the Christian century, it was noted that the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song, let me give you the acronym for that. You ready? The PCOCS. Say that five times fast. Acting under the authority of the Presbyterian Churches of America, conducted a, a survey and found that they wanted to change the words of a famous song that we have sung here, I believe, even the last couple of weeks, called In Christ Alone. How many of y'all have sung that, heard that song? It's a newer hymn. You've, if you've been around churches, you probably have. And they wanted to change it for their new hymnal of 2013 called Glory to God. So they wanted to change it. The, the line goes like this. The second stanza says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You'll see this up on the screen here. And they wanted to change it at the bottom here to the love of God was magnified. Now, that sounds great because isn't the love of God magnified? We want the love of God to go everywhere and to be big and great and, and to showcase it. But that wasn't quite the problem. The problem was is that that particular denomination did not believe that the wrath of God was part of God himself. And that's a scary thing. And by a vote of nine in favor and six against, they decided to change the hymnal to reflect what is at the bottom. So when they sing in Christ alone, here's how it sounds. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God is magnified. See, Darren, aren't we just splitting hairs? Did you just listen to Revelation chapter 6, 12 through 17? Look at verse 17 again. What is the word that you see there? It's a five-letter word, a hint, hint. We'll play a little, uh, little uh, Pat Sajak and Vanna White here on Wheel of Fortune. Can I get a W for 500? An R, an A, a T, and an H. Friends, you can't take out the words of a song that are directly related to the words of Scripture. It is a crucial belief that Jesus Christ came to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. Say, Darren, you're, are you going hellfire and brimstone? No, we're just preaching the Bible. I pray that God's love is magnified in this earth, but I pray we magnify God's love as we equally magnify that God is going to set all things right with his wrath. And if you're a Christian here today, once again, it has been snuffed out when Jesus Christ said it is finished. God's wrath is no longer on your head. But John 3 reminds us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe in the Son, what remains on him? Jesus' own words, the wrath of God remains on him. Look, the God of the Bible is incredibly patient. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. But sometimes the God of the Bible for most Christians and perhaps even that committee of that denomination seems like an overly indulgent grandparent who lets you get away with things when your parents aren't around or looking. Does that make sense? God is holy, though. He's righteous. He's just. And he's nothing like a lenient relative who lacks the resolve to hold anyone accountable for their actions. Let me be crystal clear. 
as a church, as an individual, as a Christian, you should never have to apologize for believing in a God of wrath. Ever. I'm not ashamed of it, and you shouldn't be. If the God of the Bible didn't care about things like sexual abuse, racism, injustice, theft, murder, idolatry, uh, perversion, abortion, rape, and dishonesty, then we can sing that song and take out the wrath part. But righteous anger against sin is fundamental against God's nature. And you need to know he wouldn't be deserving of anyone's worship if he didn't right the wrongs. I mean, isn't that the longing of everyone? We always say, he didn't get justice on this earth, but someday God will take care of it. You can't say that unless you believe there's a God of wrath. Holding humans accountable for wickedness and pouring out wrath on those who repent is part of his holiness. And we can't sidestep that. That's why if you're visiting this church or church member, a long-time member, we don't just cherry-pick where we preach the Bible. We typically pick books and go through verse by verse. Because guess what? I would love to skip over some sections like today in my human nature. Because it doesn't, it doesn't win people and it doesn't influence people. It, in fact, can turn a lot of people off. But if you're a Christian, this should excite your soul. Because this is what God did for you on the cross. So how many of your friends know? How many of my friends, how many of my kids know about the wrath to come? And really, how many people know about what's coming on that fateful day and, 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 and the way that Jesus saves us from it? And that is the big idea I've said a few times now, that safety from Jesus can only be found in Jesus. That is the big idea today. And if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, then the gospel will never empower, thrill, or move you. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you can never understand God's love. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you cannot understand why Jesus came as a man in the incarnation at, as we say, Christmas time. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you can never understand how unholy we are and how holy he really is. Do you know there was one sermon that revolutionized America? And it started in the 1700s by a guy wearing one of those fake wig things, you know what I'm talking about? Like with the rolls on him. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know this sermon well. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In fact, Harvard, which is where he was president or chancellor or whatever for a while, dean uh, in, the, in those days, still has a copy of that sermon. Yet they've gone this way many years ago with God. But in that sermon, he talked about how if you take out the wrath of God, you lose everything about who God is. And do you know when he preached that sermon? The colonies changed their spiritual climate. People came to Christ. People turned to Christ. People, But do you know what? Most pulpits will not preach on this topic because people don't want to hear it. You may be here today and you don't want to hear this, but I got you for another hour. No, I'm just kidding. But in all seriousness, you need to know this topic and you need to know it well. If we fail to feel the full weight of the wrath of God that we justly deserve, then grace is no longer amazing and we can't sing that song well. So today, as we look at Revelation 6, 12 through 17, in the day of the Lord's wrath, we'll see two truths, and we'll go through this, uh, and these will be up on the screen as we go, but we'll see the signs that will signal the judgment and the sinners who will fear the judge. Last week, Willie preached on, I appreciate that again, brother, preached on the souls that were underneath the altar, how they were crying out. Look at verse 9. They were crying out. Uh, they were slain for the word of God, and they cried in verse 10 with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge the blood of those who dwell on the earth? These saints were crying out, and the very next thing we have is God coming to show his wrath in all the ways. Safety from Jesus 
can only be found in Jesus. So let's look at that first point here in verse 12, and it's that uh, signs will signal the judgment. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Is what we're about to look at, is this literal or is this symbolic? I mean, really think about this for a second. Before we even get there, I want you to think about this because there are a lot of things in the book of Revelation that are merely symbols, and we've talked about that before. But I want you to know that for those who, 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 are, who are here under the weight of God's wrath, it is a very real thing. But did you see how this is described? Look at these verses again at verse 12. He tells you, there's an earthquake, the sun became black, there's a full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit. So is this happening really? Or is this not happening and it's only symbolic? Well, that's a great question. These verses are actually pulled from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, they did not see these, but anything but symbolic. But what are we saying here? Are you saying, Darren, this isn't going to happen? No. What I'm saying here is exactly what someone in our midst would often say. He looks like this guy. <laughs> is this symbolic or is it literal? And the answer is yes. yes. If you're visiting with us, that is Pastor Nelson, and he often sets up questions this way, so the only answer is yes. This is very much a symbolic passage in that with these verses being quoted from the Old Testament, I will give you a list of them right here if you're ready. These verses quoted here, this is a conglomeration of verses from Judges 5, Psalm 18, Psalm 46, Isaiah 5, 54, 64, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel 38, Micah 1, 4, and Nahum 1, 5. Did you get all that? In every one of those passages that quotes a part of verses 12 through 14, the writers of those passages saw them as symbolic. But yet, it was also literal because there was judgment of God happening at the same time. Does that make sense? The cross is a symbol of everything that we have on this earth. But we know literally that Jesus died, didn't he? You can have both and eat your cake too. And you note, if you'll go to Revelation 16 for a second before we get to our first point, this is still intro if you're keeping track. If you go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 20, I want you to see the same kind of language used in another place. And this is going to happen near the end of our study next year, hopefully before Easter, Lord willing. We'll wrap all this up. But 1620 says this, and it states, and you'll see the same thing here under the seventh bowl judgment, and every island fled away, and no mountains were found, and great hailstones, even a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So is this literal? Something's going to happen, guys. Is it symbolic? The answer is, jokingly aside, yes. It's okay to say that. For many of you coming here, coming from a, a Tim LaHaye, a, a, a very broad evangelical, you've been taught that everything is so wooden literal. Look, the Bible is God's word, but we read it in the context. And this is apocalyptic literature. The point that's being made that we'll say in a second is this is such a terrible event that to describe it, we have to give you images that just make no sense. And to do that shows the significance of what's about to happen. So let's start with that first point, that signs will signal the judgment. Signs will signal the judgment. And the very first thing you need to see here is that this will be commenced by Christ. At the end of all things, it will be commenced by Christ. Notice in verse 12 that as Jesus comes on the scene, he is still in control. 
He is the one in the first four seals of verses 1 through 8 who said, come. He's the one who's being uh, prayed to in verses 9 through 11. He is sovereign, and he is starting this. The lamb opens the seal, and everything goes forth as such. Guys, I hope that is your God. I hope that you believe that your God is big enough to control all of world history and then some. If he's not, if he's a smaller God, then we need to get our brains a little bit bigger. And he says, when he opened the sixth seal, verse 12, chapter 6, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. This is started by Christ, but you also need to know it's cosmic in capacity. It's cosmic in capacity or scope. The lamb opens the sixth seal and there's an upheaval. There is, first off, a violent or a great earthquake. And earthquakes often come with divine visitation. Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected, what happened right before there was an earthquake? Do you remember when he died, what happened that caused the splitting of the, the veil in the temple? There was an earthquake, and so on and so forth. Zechariah 14, 14 says that on that day, his feet will stand on Mount of Olives and will face Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain moved to the north and half the mountain will move to the south. So, Darren, how do we know where the symbolic literal line is? We, friends, what we know is, is that it's going to be really bad. If you're around during this time, it's going to be terrible. And so he says there, there are two other things there. As you go down to verses 12 and 13, you notice that the light of the sun, there was the sun became as black as a sackcloth. Uh, Pastor Nelson shared this illustration yesterday. I'm going to steal it in a good way, hopefully. If you've ever been in a deep cave before, like if you've gone to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky or wherever, and they, they get to a point in the tour where it's the highlight of the tour, and what do they do? Turn off the lights. I'm not going to ask you to do that right now, Nelson, because that, that would be weird, but don't do that. They turn it off. And how do you feel? You feel out of sorts, don't you? You feel almost out of control because you cannot see. Your eyes cannot adjust. They, there's no glimmer of light. Even outside when it's dark and gray, you at least have something coming from the heavens. But whatever is going to happen on that day, it's going to be so terrible. The light of the sun will be gone. And then you notice the moon there also in verse 12. The moon will become like blood. Now, I know there's a certain preacher down in San Antonio, Texas, that believes every time a blood moon happens that the end of the world's going to happen. Be very careful who you listen to. Friends, there are signs, and Jesus said you will know the signs, but don't go crazy chasing headlines. Chase after Jesus. This is not a puzzle to be solved. It's a Savior to be praised. And he's going to somehow black it out. He's going to make it red. Is that literal or symbolic? It doesn't matter. What's going to happen is, is that everything's going to change. Normality is no more. And he goes on there as we go through this in verse 13, the stars of the heavens will fall. Does this literally mean the stars are going to fall from the sky? Perhaps. And they fell to the earth as the fig tree and its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. I've noticed on our kids' trampoline in the back, we, we don't have many trees. We, we face a tree line, but some of the leaves have started to fall already. And that's going to be a job for them to clear that off so they can jump on the trampoline. But the word star here simply refers to a large body. The cosmic in scope things are going to fall. And then you see also there the stars fall. Is this a meteor shower? Is something happening here? Is this some kind of great meteor shower that NASA didn't pick up or, 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 or one of the Hollywood movies didn't cover? Maybe. What we know is, is that everything is going to change. So verse 14 
The sky separated like a scroll being called up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Precisely what this describes, we can only guess. But what we do know is that there is going to be a total cosmic meltdown. The wrath of the Lamb is here. For most of us, we're focused on what is that going to look like? How's that going to go down? Is Mount Everest going to like split in two? I don't know. And can I use another theological phrase? I don't care. The focus is not about the subsequent events. It's about the people who are attached to these events. Please don't lose the focus on that. I don't know if you're like me sometimes. Sometimes I can get so lost in the details, I forget where I'm actually, what I'm actually doing. Forest for the trees, major in the minors, that sort of stuff. All these are here are to shock your attention, to arrest your attention, and to get you to know it's going to happen. It is real, and he is coming. Are you on his side or are you not? Signals, signs will signal the judgment. But I want you to see secondly here, I want you to see secondly that sinners should fear the judge. Sinners should fear the judge. And you see that in verses 15 through 17. Not only will signs come that will signal the judgment, but now sinners should fear the judge. And lest I remind you that in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter said God doesn't show favoritism. And in James chapter 2, it's even more direct. James 2, 9 says, if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What we are about to see is that the wrath of God doesn't play favorites. You can't bribe out of this. You can't jump out of this. Every person is involved in this. Will you count them up with me? Look at verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone slave and free. How many you got there? Seven? Ooh, that's a fancy number in Revelation, isn't it? Seven. Did you notice how many signs there were in verses 12 through 14? I'm not going to count them for you, but I bet you can guess the number. Seven. Seven's an important number. And they need to fear the judge, first off, because of his presence. Verse 15 and 16, because of his presence. When the day of judgment arrives, no one will be excluded. No one will be excused. No one will be able to say, but, but, but give me more time. Or, you don't know, God, the riches I have. Well, they tried that in Matthew 19. Remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he said to him, I've sold everything, I've given everything away. And Jesus said, well, go and sell it again, or go sell it. And follow me. And he went away sad because he couldn't get away from his great wealth. Those who normally get special treatment will get none. Kings of the earth, nobles, military commanders, rich and powerful. They will not escape the wrath of the lamb that is coming. This wrath is, is in a sense, cutting down their status and prestige. They were untouchable in this life. The courts of this world could not get them. The, the, the CIA, the, the, the FBI had cases on them and they wiggled out of them. But here, they're within the scope and the aim of, of the one who sees all. They're vulnerable. And on that day, all earthly status and privilege will count for nothing. Why do they flee his presence first? Because your position in life does not matter. Your position won't matter. Can I say a word about us as pastors as well? If we don't know Jesus, as weird as that sounds, it doesn't matter. If you're the son of a, a very faithful Christian lady or guy, it doesn't matter. If your granddaddy was a pastor of a Baptist church for 50 years, it doesn't matter. 
everyone will stand before the judge on that day. And then you notice there that the social status in life will not matter either. Did you notice how he said that? He, he lists the kings and the nobles and the military, the rich and the powerful. Five of the seven are devoted to the most powerful people of the world. But then you notice what he also says in verse 14. He goes on to say that not only is it those people, but it's also the slave and the free. The slave and the free. Excuse me, in verse 15. In other words, no one gets a pass. All must give an account. It doesn't matter if you're born in this world as a slave and you never have any freedom here on this earth. You will give an account to God. It doesn't matter if you're free in the home of the, of the free and the brave. Divine judgment is a great equalizer. The free man will stand before God. The slave will be held accountable to God. And friends, I want you to know that that is a very disturbing picture, isn't it? But if you're a Christian, you should rejoice in this because God is not showing any favorites. When you became a Christian, you became a Christian because you trusted in Jesus Christ. And from the Roman emperor or the president of the United States down to the lowest person, all will face judgment. There's the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the mountains, and the islands. And there's kings, figures, leaders, wealthy, influential, those slave and those free. They all stand before the Lamb. You say, well, I'm just going to hide in the church house. Well, that's not going to work. They tried to hide in the caves. So what do you do? The point of all this is, is that you need to make sure if you're not a Christian that you are right with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know someone who is not a Christian and you're a Christian, you need to make sure they are right or know the truth about what is coming in this world. What is coming? Well, we're sinners, aren't we? We've done nothing but sin since we were born. And we are at wrath and enmity of God, but are enemies of God and his wrath is upon us. But praise God, he sent Jesus that he sent his son born under the law, that born just at the right time to die for us, to live the perfect life we couldn't live and to die the death we couldn't die. And if all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today and you've not trusted Jesus, this is the day of salvation. And don't put it off. Oh, when I have kids, I'll do it. Or uh, when they get out of the house, I'll do it. When I retire, I'll get around to it. When I'm on my deathbed, I'll do it. Didn't that thief on the cross, pastor, come to Christ? You could die any time. Do you know Jesus? Have you lived for him? So you notice, they, because of his presence, they're going to fear this judge. But I want you to notice also that they are going to fear him, not only because of his presence, but also because of what is coming next. And I mean, if you'll put that up, but because of his punishment. Because of his punishment. Verse 15, he goes on and he says, The kings and the slaves hid themselves in, in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The bottom line is this. No one can hide from divine judgment. No one can hide from divine judgment. Like Adam and Eve before, God will see them. They hid in the caves. They hid among the rocks. They even talked to the rocks and the mountains. You know, I, I have a Bluetooth headphone set that I wear when I run. It's one of those bone conduction things that you can hear, you can hear and hear at the same time. Doesn't clog your ears, but you can hear. But I always, I always get weirded out when I'm walking down somewhere and someone's talking out loud to themselves, and you don't see one of those Bluetooth earpieces in. Like that's really weird. I don't know what to do with you right now. And then somehow their phone like pops out. I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. It's just weird when you approach someone like that. What about people talking to rocks? Is that not weird? 
Is this literal or symbolic? Guys, I think this is probably a very literal statement. They don't want to see the wrath of the Lamb. They want to do anything they can, so they literally hide their faces. They say, fall on us and hide from us from the wrath of the Lamb. This, this, this lamb, and you think of a lamb, you think so docile and innocent and sweet, but they hid his face. Whereas we are comforted by the, the, the face of our God, they are distraught at the face of the one who's there. No one can hide from him. No one can escape his gaze. Please take this as an earthly example, but I, many of you can connect with this. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings before, you remember the eye of Sauron. And you remember that this evil eye was all-seeing, it seemed, in, in the books of Tolkien, and he could see everywhere. Friends, I want to tell you that the eye of the Lord is not an evil eye. It is a good and gracious eye. It beholds the evil and the good, but nowhere you hide will you ever be able to get out from beneath it. So why do they refuse to repent? Why? Why don't they just come? I mean, if they know the truth, why don't they just come to Christ? You ever asked that before? If they don't know Jesus, why? Why not come to Jesus? Would you turn to Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20? The answer will come to, for us. Revelation 9, 20. Revelation 9, 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping demons, the idols of gold and silver, and worshiping silver and bronze and stone and wood, which they cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or any of those things. Why don't they want to come to the Lamb? Because they have to give up their sin, and they don't want to do that. Friends, most people don't want to come to Jesus because they know following Jesus will require of them things that they don't want to give up because they love those things too much. You ever met somebody who, who had something in their hands, maybe a little kid, and you know they need to give it back, and what do they do? It's mine. And they make that grip tighter than any grip, and you can't pry their hands off. They will go to their deathbed before they give that toy up. So these people will go to their deathbeds before they will bow the knee and say, Lord Jesus, you are Lord above all. And so they will. Take note of these. They are firsthand witnesses. They will give everything to have nothing. Friends, it is not a matter of simply people not believing in Jesus is why they don't come. It's a simply a matter that they love their sin more than they love Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you love Jesus more than you love your sin. And that is the difference. God has opened their eyes. So no one will stand before the divine judgment of his punishment. No one can stand. No one will go. And look at verse 17, if you'll go back to chapter 6. Okay, so they go in the caves. That sounds pretty good. You 80s fans of movies know that, that, that show called War Games where they go inside NORAD in, in the middle of uh, Colorado where it's supposed to be a nuclear fallout shelter and we can stay in the game as American military. Even NORAD won't save you in that day. Verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? May I remind you that Philippians 2.9 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall stand, every knee shall bow. On that day, the only one standing is the victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you an illustration before we go to application. Suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? Might get a detention, something like that. 
Or suppose next time the boy punches the teacher. What happens? Probably gets suspended. Suppose on the way home he punches a policeman in the nose. What will probably happen? Probably go to jail, I mean, generally speaking. Suppose someday that very same boy is in the president's office and he punches the president as he passes by. What happens? He's probably shot dead by the Secret Service. In every case, the crime is exactly the same. There was a punch, and there was a consequence against the one who it was committed. And what happens when we do that to God over and over and over? It is just like everlasting destruction. It doesn't matter how you sin or what you sin or in what way you sin. In every case, the crime is the same, but the severity of the crime is measured against the one whom it's committed against. And so every sin we commit builds up for us the wrath of God, and therefore no one can stand. See, Darren, that's really dark, perhaps. But I want to give you three things to leave with before we partake of the Lord's Supper today. Three lessons I want you to thank God for. Number one is this. How should you respond? You should praise God for three things. Number one, you need to praise God for his wrath. Say, Darren, I don't know if I can do that. You should. Because sin has been dealt with. Everything in judgment has been satisfied with Jesus Christ. Friend, someday you are not going to care about anything else other than being on the right side of history. And if you're a Christian, you praise God for doing the right thing. He is a just God. Say, Darren, well, what about this baby and this situation over here? Look, there are a million answers we will never have every answer for. God is good. Sin is bad. Satan is real. But God is coming back to right all those wrongs. And he does so when the wrath of the Lamb stands there. When every person individually goes before him and gives an account for their lives. And however God works it out, he may replay it and say, I shared the gospel with you here through this person. You heard the gospel over here at this place. I gave a message to you on the radio over here. And yet you continue to go against me. And on that day, every Christian without hesitation, judging the world in righteousness like Paul says, will praise God because he set everyone Right. Pastor, how can you be so calloused? How can you cheer when God sends people to hell? Because my eyes are filled with sin on this side of earth, and on that side I'll see as he sees, not as God, being God, but as God sees. The things that cloud my judgment here will see perfectly through why he did all things righteously there. And we, with all heaven and earth, will praise God that he has finally done this. Wait, didn't we just see that last week? Look at verse 10. Isn't that the prayer they prayed, guys? Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge the blood of those who dwell on the earth? Friend, if you cannot pray, verse 10, you may not know Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with it, but you may not know. Do not be ashamed of the wrath of God. Here's, a, here's something you can be ashamed, or, or not, excuse me. Here's something you can praise God for. Praise God, there's still time left. If you are here today in the sound of my voice, there is still time for you to turn to Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait any longer. Turn to him, repent, to know the truth. And if you're a Christian, number three, praise God that you've been delivered. 
Praise God that you have a reason to celebrate that he has given you eternal life. That is something to take to the bank every time. Darren, why does every one of your sermons end with Jesus and his blood and his death and sacrificial thing? Because that's really all that matters. I can give you five ways to be a better husband. I can give you seven things to help your family do this or do that. And those are, have their appropriate place and time. But I want you to know that this is what it's really all about. God put eternity in our hearts because who can stand on that great day? If you know Jesus, you praise God that he has saved your soul. And we're going to celebrate that here in just a moment. I'm going to ask our deacons in training, and I put deacons in training because they haven't passed all the fun tests we're going to throw at them. Mr. Richard, Mr. Andy, would you guys go ahead and come up here? If you look at your bulletin, you'll notice that we usually do a last song, then the Lord's Supper. Today we're going to do the Lord's Supper, then a last song. And all the Baptists said, whoa. We're mixing it up today. But I want you to know, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper here in a minute, I'll give the ground rules and all the fun things, that, guys, we come today, if you're a Christian, celebrating, symbolic as it may be, the literal death and taking of the wrath of God that Jesus has done for us. This is a sober reminder, but it's also a great celebration and praise. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this Lord's Supper we're going to partake of in just a moment is not for you. It is for those who've come to Jesus. Parents, grandparents, use this as an opportunity to whisper in the ear of your kid or grandkid what this is all about. But this is for those who've trusted Christ, who believe in Christ, and who've been baptized in Christ. If you're here today and that's of you, here in a moment, after we pray, we'll give those final instructions. This is for you. But all because Jesus took that wrath of God. He, he's your propitiation use the big word. He snuffed it all out, and he did it for the glory of God and for your good. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you that there are signals that will, uh, signs that will signal the judgment. We thank you, Lord, that there are things that will show us that sinners should also fear the judge. Father, we thank you that to be safe in you requires that we know Jesus. We've trusted in him and him alone to save us from all our sins, not baptism or church going or being a good person or trying hard enough or sincerely enough or giving money to the church or, or knowing someone who's a Christian or, or simply sitting in a pew or a chair. To know Christ is to turn our hearts once and for all, to repent, to 180 our lives by your grace, to have a change of mind and heart and will that only your spirit can provide and trust on our knees as it were, that Jesus is the Savior and Lord. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask as we partake of the Lord's Supper here that you would be lifted high. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.